0: Many of us we struggle with anxiety. Some of us wonder if we're going to be able to pay all the bills this coming month. And others, uh, other, others of us, we look around at all the, the events happening in the world and we sort of wonder to ourselves, are we on the brink of the end of all things? Even if we aren't concerned about those things, many of us do wonder what kind of world are our children going to be left with? But with all the things that bother us and all the things that can bother somebody, none can compare to the anxiety one has to face when contemplating their eternal destination. And what's strange is, is that for many of us, before conversion, we don't even think about it. Our concern about eternity doesn't usually happen until after we've been saved in terms of having fear about it. The Spirit of God, He awakens us to the reality of who we are, what we've done, and what we deserve. And because we know that we're sinners, and because we know that God is holy, our enemy uses our consciences to condemn us, to make us feel hopeless about our eternal eternal state, creating a feeling of anxious despair so that we can give up on the race entirely. And I know from experience because I've been there. Satan has shown me things that I've done. He's shown me my failures as as falling asleep and not always keeping watch after coming to faith. And I have been in the dungeon of despair. I've been to the point where I've thought I've done such horrible things before my conversion and I've sinned against grace even after my conversion, that I believe I should just throw in the towel. Give up. But yet I'm still here. I'm still believing. I still believe now, even more strongly than ever, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and has died for my sins. Why is that? Why, after all the trials that I face, the internal struggles that I face, do I still believe in Jesus Christ? To put it simply, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Or as Mark read, this morning about the new covenant. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will never turn away from me. For the next three weeks, I want to look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. For the first week today, I want to remind us all of the great eternal security promises that God has made to us in scripture to the people in the new covenant. And I'm going to argue today that when somebody has genuine faith in Jesus Christ that that person is saved and will be saved throughout eternity. And my hope and my prayer for all of you is that you will leave here today encouraged and built up about your salvation. Next week, next Sunday, I want to talk about how the scriptures describe the lives of those who are Eternally secure. For instance, do these promises that we're going to talk about today apply to someone who walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, and made a profession of faith 20 years ago, but has no interest in God or eternal things today? Is that person saved? Is that what we're talking about when we talk about eternal security? And for the third Sunday, I want to look at the warning passages in scripture that that some people argue teach that we can lose our salvation. And my hope is that we'll leave the sermon with a healthy realization that the warning passages are there for believers to take seriously and they function to help us persevere. There are many different ways to, to sort of categorize or approach this topic. Some people just go randomly through all the eternal security passages. Some people look at the the covenants and they try to explain eternal security that way. But I want to look at eternal security through the Trinity. By far, the strongest principle that can give you confidence that you are eternally secure is to know that your eternal security doesn't ultimately depend on you. If you want rock-solid confidence that you'll be a Christian 10 years from now and on your deathbed and into eternity, then you need to understand that your eternal security, your eternal state doesn't ultimately depend on you. Even when people speak of uh, what's called synergism, it's, it's a fancy way to talk about cooperating. Where part of our persevering depends on us and part on God, we have to realize that we would always reject the grace of God when faced with the choice between God or sin. You have to understand that we are weak, sinfully inclined creatures. We are just like Esau, ready to throw away our inheritance for a bowl of porridge. If we were given the opportunity, we would throw away our inheritance in a heartbeat when given the option of either God, if we had to take our career over him, wealth, living a life that fulfills all of our sexual fantasies. That's our porridge. That's our bowl of stew. And we'll take it every time over our inheritance if left to us. If your eternal salvation depends on you, you will lose your your salvation. If it ultimately depends on you, you will lose your salvation. But if our eternal state rests on the unchanging, unshakable, triune God, then you have absolutely nothing to worry about. It's God who put the fear of him in your heart so that you don't eternally trade him away for an idol. And yes, there are seasons when we we put other things above God, but if we have genuine faith and belong to him, God will always bring us back. I don't like this thing. So our eternal security rests... On the triune God. And because I want you to be convinced that God is the one who keeps us eternally secure, I want to go through each member of the Trinity and talk about how each of them work to ensure that we make it home. Let's look at the, the Father first. Now, Scripture, they speak about, it speaks about two wills in, when it comes to God, and it's often attributed specifically to the Father. There are two wills in God, there's a will of command, and the will of command is the, the revealed will that we find in the Word of God. It's the commandment to not lust, it's the commandment to not have idols to obey your parents, children. It's the command to be commandment to be image bearers. and people break God's will of command every day. You see it everywhere. we as Christians break God's will of command. But then scripture also talks about God's will of decree. This will is it's often hidden from us. It's not always. Sometimes scripture tells us specifically about God's will of decree. But God's will of decree is never broken. It always comes to pass. Listen to Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases, Or listen to this from the book of Daniel: All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Whatever God decrees to happen in His will of decree will come to pass. Nothing happens apart from God's will of decree. Is that clear? That shouldn't make you upset in any way. It should make you comfortable and secure because if you believe in Jesus, God has decreed that you will be innocent and perfect throughout eternity. He chose, elected, decreed that we would be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1.4. And if God said that that's going to happen, it's going to happen. Let's turn to Romans eight. I'll give you a minute to get there. I'm wanting to look at verses twenty nine and thirty. I'm going to read the verse. Listen as I as I read. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage is often referred to as the, the golden chain of redemption. And it's because there is an inseparable link between the foreknowing at the beginning of verse 29 to the glorification at the end of verse 30. There's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot that could be said. We could do three sermons just on this text alone, but for our purposes right now, I want to focus just on verse 30. It says, "In those whom he predestined, he also called. What is this calling? What does it mean to be called? Is this the, the audible gospel proclamation that Jim Basile and I would would give when we'd go door to door and and have people shut the door in our face? Is that what we're talking about? No. It's It's not an audible outward call. This call is an inward spiritual call. This is God working in our hearts through his spirit to help us see Jesus as glorious and say, I want him. Look at what Paul says happens to the one who has this inner call, who sees Jesus as glorious for the first time. He says, they are justified. That means they are acquitted of all charges against them. The divine courtroom says that these people are innocent. They are in the right. And next Paul says that those who have this inward call and are justified, are also glorified. That means they make it to eternal joy. How does this text teach eternal security? We can see it in the fact that everyone that's involved in this chain of redemption makes it all the way home. Everyone. The ones who are foreknown at the beginning are also the ones who are glorified at the end. And to be justified, that, in, that initial verdict happens the moment that you believe in Jesus. And Paul here teaches that if you ever truly believed, and you ever, that you were justified, and he also says that you will be in glory. If I were to say, for instance, that the people who I called on the phone are also the people that met me at a restaurant and are also the people who played board games with me later, what am I saying? I'm saying that the people that I called on the phone are the same exact people that ended up playing board games with me later on. Paul doesn't leave any room here for an exception or for someone to fall out. He's describing the redemptive chain as a fact. Everyone that's received any of God's salvific benefits gets them all. Every single person God foreknew, every single person he inwardly awoken to the gospel will be glorified. No one left behind. And we'll see this in a week or two. But if we ever see someone that seems to have fallen away, Scripture teaches that they were never saved to begin with, that they never believed. John says they went out from us, but they were not of us. And he actually says if they were of us, they would have have remained with us, they would have kept going, they would have kept believing. And there's this confidence that if I was inwardly called, I'll be glorified because the text highlights that it's not about us. It's not us, but it's God that's making it happen. He's the one who called. He's the one who justified. He's the one who will glorify. Your eternal security isn't about you and your weak, fickle faith. It's about God the Father carrying out what he decreed to happen. And this brings us to our next point. The people that believe in Jesus, the Father decreed to be eternally glorified, are handed over to the Son for his watch and protection. We are eternally secure because the Son watches over us. And we see clearly of the Father giving the Son a people and the Son watching and protecting them in John 6. You guys don't have to turn there, but just listen. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. So there we have the Father giving the Son a people. And all that the Father gave the Son will come to the Son in faith and in belief. And just after this, Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me. This is the unfordable will of decree of the Father, the will that cannot be broken. What is this unfordable will? Jesus says that I should lose none of what the Father has given me, but raise them all up on the last day. So what Jesus is saying in John 6 is that he has a mission to complete the Father's will, which consists of keeping every single person that the Father has prompted to come into faith in Jesus Christ. To put it simply, you will be eternally kept and resurrected because that's the Son's mission. Let's turn to John 10. still see some of you flipping around. I'll give you a second. I want to look at verses 27 to 30. John 10, 27 to 30. Listen. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I remember when I was going to to Bible college and seminary, I started getting arrogant. Long story short, I I had success with with grades. I had good grades. I had a job at the school's writing center where I I wrote online articles and, and blogs for the school, tutored students. And through all that, I just started seeing myself as greater than I really was. I started puffing my, myself up. And I would be arrogant towards towards other students and, and Christians at the school. One day, I'm sitting at my house. And the Lord began to show me my attitude and, and how disgusting it all was. And I felt so convicted uh, by the Spirit about my arrogance, and I'm not joking, I cried for about two days because of the way I treated people. I felt like I had murdered somebody. And and I tell some people this sometimes, it was just like a second conversion to me almost. Not that there is a second conversion, but... For the next couple months after this had happened, I I was tormented about everything. Everything. And what I did is I gave the enemy plenty of fuel to attack me. And I fell into thinking that there's no way that God forgave me for for what I've done. My attitude was too much. My arrogance was too much. And one day, it got to the point where I simply couldn't take it anymore. And I started to really think that maybe I'm a castaway. Maybe I traded away my inheritance for a bowl of porridge. And when I was at that point, and no doubt in my mind, a prompting of the Spirit, I turned to John 10, and I just start reading verses 27 and 28 over and over again. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And all my condemning thoughts at that point went away. I want you to invite you to make this passage of chapter 10 in John one of the central passages of your life. Come to it over and over again. Jesus says it here that he gives his sheep, his people, eternal life. In the book of John, eternal life is often spoken of of us having it in the present tense, of us having it now. Meaning that we actually possess eternal life when we believe, not something we have after the final judgment. And if we currently have eternal life, then by definition we could never lose eternal life because if eternal life can be lost, it was never eternal to begin with. For instance, if I say, I'm going to give you a hundred years of life. I can't do that, but if I tell you that, and then you die two years later, that would mean you never actually had a hundred years of life. And similarly, eternal life by definition cannot be lost or would be called conditional or temporal life. But eternal life is what Jesus has given us now, in the present. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life right now as you sit here and listen. In case you're confused about what eternal life means, Jesus goes on to say with the most emphatic negative he could possibly give. You could possibly translate it as, They shall never, ever perish. And he gives an image of him in verse 28, of him sort of holding believers in his hand and saying, nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Think about it. You're in Jesus' hand, and the Father's for that matter. What could possibly snatch you out of it? He's God. He's the creator. What created being has any chance against him? One of the favorite metaphors the biblical authors like to use of of Jesus was him as a, a shepherd. They like to speak of him as a shepherd. And a shepherd, if he loved the sheep, cared for the sheep, would protect the sheep against all kinds of predators that wanted to kill the sheep. Wolves, to name one. Jesus here is pictured as a shepherd holding us in his hand to protect us, but not against actual wolves or bears or lions or some other animal. He's the shepherd that protects us against Satan and false teachers and from the schemes of men and women who want to lead us away. He's saying that this world is full of people who want to lead you astray, full of people that want to destroy your faith, full of people ready to carry out Satan's schemes, but you're in my hand and you're not going anywhere. I sometimes hear people say that, well, it may be true that, that demons and, and men and women, they can't take us out of God's hand, but we can take ourselves out of God's hand. First, that completely misses the purpose of the assurance Jesus is trying to give believers. If we can take ourselves away, then these words are meaningless because it's myself that I worry about the most. Now, Jesus has already said in chapter 6 that he will not lose one, and he's saying that in a different way right here. The second thing I would say to someone who argues that we can pull ourselves out of Jesus' hand is that that doesn't make sense because there is no situation where others aren't involved in leading people away from Jesus. The devil sets traps and schemes for us, false teachers are out there to destroy us. And if someone Falls into Satan's trap, or if they abandon the gospel for false teaching, then you could never say that it was just ourselves that removed us from Jesus' hand because the devil and men played a part in it. And you would have to say that Satan and false teachers in sin are stronger than Jesus and the Father, and that they took us out of Jesus' hand, which is the very thing that Jesus said won't happen. I wish we could look at another text in, in Romans 8, because it's one of the strongest texts about eternal security. But quickly, Paul is he's making a point, a similar point uh, as this point here. And he goes on laboring to name every single thing he can think of. He, he mentions height and depth. And in case you're still struggling to get the point, he says, nor anything else in all of creation, which includes ourselves. And he says that can never separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Another reason you can have full confidence that you will make it to the end is because Jesus' office, Jesus' office as a high priest. In Romans eight, the, the greatest chapter in, in all of Scripture, Paul is wanting the Romans to to feel the weight of their standing before God, and he asks the question, Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died and is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Jesus' intercession for his people is a function of his role as high priest. The Jewish high priest, was a, he was a mediator between man and God. He'd offer up sacrifices for the people. He'd offer up prayers. He would even go into the most holy place inside the temple and intercede for the people of Israel. And the book of Hebrews teaches us that all of the high priests were just shadows of the substance Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 9.24. For Christ has entered, not into the places made with hands, a temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And when it comes to our eternal security, the author of Hebrew tells us that we will be saved to the uttermost, perfectly, completely, when we draw near to him. Why? He says, because Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Jesus, as our protective shepherd and high priest, he's always watching us. He always has his eyes on you and he knows exactly what you need. And as your high priest, he prays the exact prayers that need to be prayed to make sure you remain in the faith and do not become lost. There's a story in the Gospels and it's right before Jesus is crucified and Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded to have him. He says, Satan wants to sift Peter like wheat. What does that mean? What does it mean to sift Peter like wheat? There was a tool that people would use to use and they would put the the wheat inside the tool and it would separate the wheat uh, from what should be discarded. And it seems that what Satan wanted to do is he wanted to separate Peter from his faith. But Jesus, as Peter's high priest says to Peter, But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. And we see Peter fall into great sin. He he denies Jesus, but Jesus' prayer for Peter was answered. Peter was restored. When Jesus prays, that prayer is answered. And Jesus prays for every single believer, just like he did Peter. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, which is often referred to as the high priestly prayer. And he says explicitly that this prayer isn't for everyone. It's not for unbelievers. He says, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, the believers. And what does Jesus pray for us? He says, Father, I desire that they may also be with me where I am to see my glory. And he also prays that as we're here in the world as it currently is, that we would be protected from the evil one. And so if Jesus has prayed for us to be with him, to see his glory, and to protect us from the evil one, do you believe that those prayers will be answered? Yes. Yes, they will. You are eternally secure because Jesus protects you as your great shepherd and prays for you as your high priest. Lastly and quickly, you are eternally secure because God has given you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that you obtain your eternal inheritance. Turn to Ephesians 1. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14. Listen as I read. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So kings in the first century, they, they used to put clay or wax on a, on a letter or a document, and then they would press into the wax with a ring or some sort of instrument, and it would create a seal. And the ring, they would also create a marking within the wax. One king uh, during this time, he had, a, he had a seal that had a, a lion uh, onto it. And this would let the recipient or anyone know that would see the document, they would know that this document was from this king, from this specific person. The king has claimed ownership that it's from him. In Esther it says, no document sealed with the king's ring may be revoked. So when God seals us With the Holy Spirit, he's making a claim of ownership on you. He's saying to you in the world that you belong to him. And Paul says that if you have this seal of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by faith and repentance and and fruit of the Spirit, that is a deposit and guarantee of your future inheritance. Everyone knows from whether a house or a car, that when you purchase these things, often a a down payment is required. And Paul is, he's using that language here. He's saying that God has put a down payment on us by giving us the Holy Spirit, and the rest of our inheritance is to come. So if you've seen the evidence of the Spirit in your life, you are guaranteed to obtain the rest of your inheritance. We are eternally secure because each member of the Trinity actively works to bring us home. Imagine, if you will for a second, a king from England, let's say 300 years ago, and he somehow finds out that his daughter, that's four years old, is somehow... Let's say Greenland or or Australia or something like that. He finds out that his daughter is all the way there, his lost daughter. And so what should this king do? The father of the girl, what should he do? Well, he sends his son, let's say it's Greenland. He sends his son to Greenland to find her. And he tells his son, when you find my daughter, place the royal robes with the royal symbol upon her and bring her back to me. So the son finds her, he puts the robe on her, and then he travels to the coast of Greenland until they get on a ship, and they set sail for England for home. Now in this illustration, notice that the father decreed for his his daughter to come home. The son carried out the decree. He put the royal robe with the royal symbol on her, and the son was with her every step of the way. And for our purposes of the sermon, the Father pulls out all the stops for us. He sends his Son to come get us, and he places his royal robes with his symbol, the seal of the Holy Spirit, upon us. And his Son is with us every step of the way on our journey home. If you're going to argue that we can lose our salvation, then you have to say that the Father's decrees and plans can be thwarted. You have to say that the son failed in his mission to not lose even one believer. You have to say that the son failed in his role as a shepherd and high priest. You have to say that God's unremovable seal of the Holy Spirit isn't a guarantee of our future inheritance. If a true believer ever fell away from God, we'd have to conclude that the triune God failed in his promises to keep us forever. So when you're at work, spiritually down, or even on your deathbed, rest assured in knowing that the triune God has given all of his resources to make sure that you make it home. Yes, next week we're going to talk about the necessity of persevering in faith, but we've seen that you are eternally secure because ultimately It doesn't depend on you. Ultimately, it depends on God. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, sadly, none of these promises are for you. You will be conscious for eternity, but it will be eternal, conscious suffering. But if you repent even here even now God will forgive you because of his son's work of dying in the place of sinners on the cross. All sins past, present and future will be paid for. Gone. My hope is that everyone here goes home encouraged knowing that God always completes what he started because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Triune God, thank you that each person, each member of the Trinity has his own unique role and work in making sure that we are saved. Thank you that you don't let us to ourselves, that you lead us, you guide us, you bring us home. And we are secure in you. We look to you to keep us in the faith. And we pray that your eternal security be the meditation of our hearts this week. We also pray to understand what it looks like for those who are eternally secure, which is perseverance in faith and repentance. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.